Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbis Leon Morris and Daniel Reifman on Parshat Vayetze. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbis Leon Morris and Daniel Reifman. Well, it's Parashat Vayetze, and I'm so happy to be sitting here with my colleague and friend, Daniel Reifman. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Leon. How are you? I'm uh, excited to explore this with you. Uh, I, I love this parasha, and I want, to, uh, I, I want to share three ideas that really excite me about the very beginning of, of the parasha. Uh, so we read Vayetse Yaakov mi Be'er Shava Vayelech Harana Vayifgaba Makom Vayalen Sham Kiva Hashemesh. So uh, Yaakov went out from Be'er Sheva and he went toward Haran and he happened upon a certain place and he tarried there for the night because the sun had set. And I just want to focus initially on this phrase, that he happened upon a place. And uh, the, the rabbis, in their discussion of the three times of prayer each day, attribute to Yaakov that he's the one who instituted a tefillat arvit, evening prayer, ma'ariv. And their Proof text is the use of the word vayifga, which we translated as happened upon. Uh, and, and drawing from the use of the word in Yermiahu, in the prophet Jeremiah, uh, they, they make an argument that it means a time of prayer. And this is interesting to me um, because the whole idea of praying in the dark and, and kind of discovering that there can be this thing called evening prayer seems to be like a really counter-cultural move of Yaakov, uh, that he overcomes fear of the dark and he cultivates in that darkness a sense of faith and hope. And dark Darkness and the night is still a very powerful metaphor. We use it all the time. Uh, and yet it's in this cold loneliness, darkness of night that Yaakov has a transformative event. And um, I think that reading the biblical verse in this way, the, the rabbis regarded Yaakov as somehow overcoming seeing the night as a limitation. In fact, the Midrash says that uh, the world became a wall before him. He wasn't able to go forward anymore. And so Jacob is able to overcome this wall, this limitation, this sense of being trapped and constricted in the night by inventing evening prayer. And so he changes our notion of the circumstances in which human beings can meet God. 
This is, of course, the, 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 uh, Yaakov being the third of the patriarchs, and the first two of the patriarchs, as they just tell us, found the morning and afternoon prayers. So Yaakov's, on the one hand, uh, continuing a tradition, but he's also somehow taking it further and, and, and bringing it into a space where we might think that prayer is not welcome or not intuitive or not something that human beings are capable of doing. Beautiful. I, I think that, you know, somehow by the rabbi's assertion, if we if we really dissect it, it would seem that it didn't it never occurred to Avraham or Yitzchak that you could pray at night. Night didn't seem like a, a time of prayer. It, it's also interesting that, that this is the first moment that we're really seeing Yaakov on his own setting out on a journey that will, of course, culminate in his becoming the, the, the third patriarch, the third chosen figure in the, in the, the biblical family. Um, but there's a lot of night in Yaakov's life, and, mm. and maybe the fact that he he founds prayer here is a kind of foreshadowing of of, of many aspects of his life. Um, so many pivotal events in his life happen at night. Uh, maybe most uh, most prominently, his struggle with the angel when he's returning from Haran. Um, but 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 also maybe again, night is a time of, of uh, night is a symbol of of of. of uh, existential darkness and hopelessness. Um, Yaakov is, the, is the, the patriarch who has the most difficult life, who, who, who struggles with his family, struggles with, with what he thinks is the loss of his son. And, and operates within that, reclaims that. He's yes. you know, taking back the night. Yes, yes, very much reclaiming the, the suffering as something that, 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 we, that humans can overcome and, and work through. So one Hasidic master, the Shem Mishmuel, writes about Yaakov's discovery that this hints to us that even if a person is at the lowest point and in darkness, he or she should not despair, but they should gird whatever strength they have left and they should pray. Um, and this idea that Yaakov was somehow composed enough in that moment to turn to prayer as a as an option uh, is uh, something I find really powerful and beautiful. Um, Rilke writes in uh, Prayers of a Young Poet, I love the dark hours of my being for they deepen my senses. In them, as in old letters, I find my daily life already lived in pious words, so soft and subdued. From them, I've come to know that I have room for a second life, timeless and wide. When I was reading that, that spoke to me of Yaakov. Right. Night, night becomes an opportunity, not just a limitation. Mm. It becomes a time where you can become somebody else, which is, of course, what, what will happen to Yaakov. And night is also a time of uh, intimacy. And I think more than just being a statement of hope, praying at night, praying in the dark is a turn from the dark as fearful to the dark as the intimate place. Um, the, uh, the Midrash reads, uh, because the sun had set, as uh, God caused the sun to set prematurely on that evening with Yaakov. And the Midrash says this can be compared to a king's close friend who visits occasionally. And whenever he would visit him, the king would order the lamps to be dimmed or extinguished in order to speak with his friend in privacy. And so Yaakov is teaching us that darkness isn't just a place of fear. It's also a place of love and intimacy. And I'm thinking about the fact that uh, 
in the discussion of Arvit, of Ma'ariv, of the evening service, there's a, there's a different quality to it. It's considered reshut. It's, it's uh, optional, as it were, and we took it on ourselves, but it doesn't correspond to the, the sacrifices in the temple. And there's something intimate about that, uh, of saying, you know, God, I love you so much, I want to commit to praying to you every evening. Uh, in the intimacy of darkness. I, I never thought about that aspect of, of the, the, the voluntary nature of evening prayer as, as something intimate, but I, I really love that. Uh, Yaakov is also, of course, the forefather who, who loves most deeply and most tragically. Mm. Mm. That his life of intimacy is, uh, you know, he's really driven by, by his loves. Yes, yes. Mm. So, I just wanted to bring out two other short pieces, uh, and then we'll move forward in the parasha. Uh, there's a debate among the rabbis about when it says, makom, and he happened upon the place, uh, the Midrash, uh, Rav Huna in the name of Rav Ami, says, well, uh, this is a euphemism for God. He happened upon God. Uh, hamakom is a rabbinic euphemism for, for God. Uh, of course, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't appear in the Torah as a euphemism for God, but they're reading it in here. And other uh, commentaries, uh, commentators such as Rashi say, uh, no, it means uh, the place. And we just had in the previous Parsha where Hamakom meant uh, Har Hamoriah, the, uh, Mount Moriah, it meant Har Habayit, it meant the... Uh, the place that uh, that Avraham saw from afar, it's the Temple Mount. And there's something about that tension of the commentaries, which I think uh, also speaks to us about how do we how do we access the holy? How much of it is accessed through the encounter with a place coming to Israel, being in Yerushalayim, coming to the Kotel or the Temple Mount? And how much is about a kind of openness to surprise that can occur in any place at any time, and it just happened in that place uh, that God uh, that God appeared. And I think this challenges us, this tension to overcome the dichotomy between uh, time and space in, in Jewish life. I think that holiness can be accessed in both. And, and, and between uh, planning and surprise. Mm, mm, right, the keva and kavana, right? How much is the, the routine and how much is the surprise? Uh, the other dichotomy that uh, is undone by some of the commentators here is the dichotomy between study and prayer. And uh, the ma'or vashemesh and others bring in a midrash that read the verse, uh, verse 7, chapter 69, verse 7, as... Vayikat Yaakov Mishnato, and Yaakov awoke from his sleep. They read it as Vayikat Yaakov Mi Mishnato, and Yaakov uh, looked up from his study, got up from his study. And uh, this is building on the idea that Yaakov was studying in the yeshiva of uh, Shem and Ever, and that he awoke from his study, uh, the 14 years of study he was doing, and when he woke up, he realized that 
Torah alone wouldn't bring him a full awareness of God. And that's why he's able to say, Hashem b'makom hazeva anochi lo yadati, God was in this place that I didn't know. I didn't know you could encounter God outside the world of the Beit Midrash. And there's a way in which this, uh, this Midrash is trying to say there's a place for study, and we certainly lift that up and think about that all the time here at Pardes, and there's a place for prayer. And I think study and prayer are really about the head and about the heart, and a full Jewish life, a full religious life, a full human life needs to encompass both our heads and our hearts. Beautiful. Very, very beautiful. Um, I, I, I wanted to take the, the, the our analysis of the Parsha, starting with a different image in this episode, uh, and then carry it further to get a sense of what happens to Yaakov as the Parsha unfolds. The text says that when he gets to that place, he takes from the stones of the place, and he places it beneath his head or by his head, um, and then he falls asleep. The stone is an image that recurs regularly throughout the parsha, and it seems to me that from this very early use of the image, we already get a sense of how we can trace the path of Yaakov's own character development, his religious development, uh, through this image of the stone. At this moment, he takes a stone from that place, and there's nothing remarkable about that stone. It's just a random stone that he places beneath his head. It's his pillow. It's his pillow. He, he, the, and the, the image of Jacob's pillow has, you know, the, the, the irony maybe of a stone being a pillow, but, um, but, but, but it's, it's a very evocative image in the sense that uh, it's a random stone. There's nothing significant about it. Jacob is all alone out in the wilderness, un, 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 untended, uncared for. Um, and to be honest, at this point in the story, there's nothing that we know that singles out Jacob as somebody uh, who, who, who will come into his own. We don't know where he's going. and We don't know what's going to happen to him. He certainly feels insignificant and alone at this point in the story. When he has the dream of God uh, standing above him, the angels going up and down the ladder, he suddenly realizes that he's not entirely alone and that God is with him wherever he goes. And therefore, when he wakes up in the morning, he takes the stone that he had placed beneath his head, anoints it with oil, and establishes it as a matseva, as, 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 as a monument of what happened to him in this place. And now the stone becomes a significant stone and a symbol of the fact that Jacob, even though alone, is always tended to by God. When he, at the next stage of his journey, when he goes to Haran, uh, we read a very interesting episode where he encounters the shepherds outside the city and they're all standing around a well. And again, there's a stone on the mouth of the well. And he says to the shepherds, why are you waiting? Water the flocks. They say, well, we have to wait for everybody to gather because the stone is so large, it needs all of us to roll it away. And then he sees Rachel in the distance, Rachel, his cousin, who's the shepherdess, coming, and he's so uh, he's 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 so besotten with 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 Rachel that he, he suddenly feels a surge of strength, and he alone rolls the stone off of the well. So again, we can see the stone as as representing where Yaakov is at this point. The stone is no longer a small, insignificant stone; it's a massive stone. And Yaakov himself finds the strength, the inner strength and potential to roll the stone away 
on his own mm. again signifying that he's 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 now coming into his own he's realizing his own potential um, and we get a sense that this is a remarkable character who who who, who will eventually uh, realize that potential beautiful i i keep thinking of the the psalm that we recite as part of hallel right evan Right, the stone that we think is so insignificant and now become the cornerstone. Um, if I can read your mind in terms of thinking about yes. <laughs> where you are in terms of building in stones. Um, stones are, of course, a, a very evocative image in the sense that they become uh, the, the, uh, they're a symbol of permanence. They're, they're a source of building material, certainly in the biblical period, mm. even in the modern period. Um, and, and, and there's something significant about building and creating permanent uh, structures. And, uh, and we're seeing and, and him build his life. We're here. seeing him building his life. We're seeing, uh, we're, and, and of course, Paradis at this point is building something uh, mm. permanent for the future um, in, in the form of our new building. Um, if we follow Yaakov further into the Parsha, uh, towards the end of the Parsha, where he finally confronts his father-in-law, who, uh, who, who has been chasing him, um, who, who wants to take him captive uh, or worse. And um, at the moment of confrontation, they finally come to a kind of cold peace where Yaakov says, I will go my way, you go your way. And he says to his entire family, his 12 sons, his four wives, his servants, everybody take a stone and make a mound. And that mound, the Galaid, the mound that is the testament, um, becomes a marker of Yaakov's own strength. And of course, now there's a massive pile of stones. Yaakov is already not, no longer alone. It's not one single stone. He's already become the amalgam of, 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 of the family that he's created and gathered around him. Um, and, and, and now already he's the, this is the genesis of what will become the, the, the new nation. Um, and at that moment when Lavan, um, uh, Lavan says this mound will be an aid between us, will be a testament. This is the, the kind of geographical boundary of, 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 of between your area, your, your, your domain and my domain. Um, and it says that Yaakov, uh, prays, B'Shem Elohei, Yaakov swears in the name of, of, of the, 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 the awe of his father, Yitzchak. In other words, now Yaakov has fully come into his own as the third patriarch. He's, he's, he's earned the title and he's earned that, uh, that the, the prestige uh, through the journey that he's traveled in this parsha. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. The, I love this way in which the text sort of projects Yaakov's life into this narrative detail of the stones. I, I find it interesting in terms of, of, of the style of the biblical text. The text is so sparse and so stingy with detail that anytime mm. you see a physical uh, image, a, a prop even, you could call it, uh, there, you, you have to wonder why it's there. And, mm. and it seems to me that the stones stand out in this portion in particular uh, as, as, as a way of kind of cluing us into to the fact that Yaakov develops as a character re really very powerfully and and and, um, and and makes us aware that that Yaakov maybe at the beginning of the crush was not somebody who was necessarily worthy and works within himself and on himself in order to earn uh, the title that becomes his and shares with us uh, what it is for one of the avot one of the patriarchs to build their life 
yeah. what are the yeah. what are the stages and, and, that they and, go through. This is kind of the opposite of the you know uh, hagiographic stories of you know the moment Absolutely. someone's born, they're uh, yeah. they're fully formed and they're a genius and they're a spiritual master. Yeah, I, I, and 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 the, the truth is there are there are characters who are like that. I think that there's there's a sense that Yitzhak is born into greatness. Um, not, of course, that he doesn't earn it in his own way, but there's not the same sense of struggle within himself and with his circumstances that we find, uh, that we find with Yaakov. Um, and Yaakov, of course, will struggle throughout his life, as we talked about earlier. Yaakov is, it lives much of his life in darkness, um, and, and, and the statement of faith that he makes at the beginning of his journey is, is a statement of, uh, of, of, of the faith that he will find ultimately the end of his life in exile, uh, knowing uh, that ultimately the, uh, the that God will redeem the Jewish people from slavery. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.